Okay, so Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is finishing up his list, the 51 things that Sephardim and Ashkenazim do differently from each other. Some of these things have been seemingly trivial. Some of these things have been major. We spent the bulk of last week discussing the tefillin of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam and putting them together separately and not putting them on at all. Like I promised last week, I sent out a video earlier today about uh, if you wanted to potentially put two tefillin together, you wanted to see how those who do it, do it. Uh, that video is available in the Google Classroom. The next difference that Rabbi Shem Tov again brings down is on the top of page 24, which is 22 in your PDF. It says, Mem Gimel, Sefaradim, En nohagin likrot besefer Torah kol hanedarim belel simchat Torah kimenag Ashkenaz. The Sefaradim do not read the Torah, the kol hanedarim of the Torah, on the eve of Simchat Torah, the way the Ashkenazim do. Has anyone ever seen Ashkenazim reading the Torah at the nighttime of Simchat Torah? This is quite a common Ashkenazi custom, though it may not be the same in certain Hasidic groups. In my years with Chabad, I don't recall them reading the Torah at night. Uh, definitely the regular Ashkenazim, though, that I was around, read the Torah at night of Simchat Torah. Now, it's really quite unusual how you have a Torah reading at night in the first place. Meaning, to take out the Torah and to read the Torah, you could do that whenever you want. You can, you can use the Torah as a chumash that you're learning from if you would like, but to read it with people who get an aliyah to the Torah, that's already a whole different ballgame, and, and that was not unanimous among the poskim. There were some who wanted to suggest that this is unique because Simchat Torah has its own unique set of laws in the first place. There's all kinds of things that are suspended in Ashkenazi tradition on Simchat Torah. Let's read the footnote, 86. The Ramah quotes this minhag. And he writes, They read the nidarim of the Sefer Torah. It seems to me the custom today by Ashkenazim, when they read, they either read to wherever the Torah is open, or they read in Vizot Beracha. That's where they seem to read from the Torah. He mentions in the Dachei Moshe there's another custom. They take out three Torah scrolls. They read one, the end of the Torah, one, the beginning of the Torah, and one, they read in Parashat Pinchas. And the custom is not that way, nowadays. They read... A, a different section of the Torah, and people bid on those sections, and they get an aliyah. If I'm not mistaken, in my wife's community, they call the reading at night, kol hanedarim. That's what they call it. It's called the, the reading of these vows. At the end of the book of Dinim, and the customs of the synagogue, Katab, he writes, once they return all of the Torahs back to the Aron Kodesh, to the Ark, they leave just one. And they read three men take an aliyah in the parasha v'zot barachah, the end of the Torah, and they say half Kaddish. And it's a wonder in my eyes. The Ramah never mentions that people should take aliyot to the Torah. 
זה לא אמר שהקריאה תהיה בפרשה וזאת הברכה, nor does the רמה mention that you read this פרשה וזאת הברכה. ועוד רציתי לדעת מה שכתב הרמה, קוראים לספר תורה נדרים, בקונין הנדרים. Meaning, he says, I'm not really sure how the current Ashkenazi custom of today is connected to the old Ashkenazi custom of reading the Sefer Torah in those places. Meaning, it could be that when the Ramah says you read the Torah at night, you just took out a Torah scroll and read. No brachot, no aliyot, no kaddish, just reading. And it seems the custom snowballed from there. Matati l'rab acharon. And I found from a later rabbi, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, Vehu Sefaradin, he's a Sephardic rabbi. Besefer Kaf Achayim. Has anyone ever heard the book Kaf Achayim? There's two of them. Anyone know who wrote each of them? Either one of them? One of you should speak. Very good. So the earlier one is by Rabbi Chaim Palaji of Turkey. He writes a Kaf Achayim. It's very similar to a type of Kitsur Shulchan Aruch of sorts. If you were in its format, meaning it's a lot of laws that are written one after the next. And Morty, we're going to say another Kaf Achayim. Yeah, very good. Kaf Achayim Sofer in Iraqi Chacham in Yerushalayim, who wrote a commentary on the first volume of Shulchan Aruch Achayim and sections of the second volume Yoredah. Uh, that book is very commonly studied as opposed to the first one, which I don't know many people who, who that's a regular book they refer to, unfortunately. Uh, the Kav HaChaim uh, Sofer, and that's normally who we mean by the Kav HaChaim, is so recent that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin refers to him as like a very recent rabbi. Like he's almost on the, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is on the cutting edge of Jewish study that he knows anything that's written inside the Kav HaChaim, which is very interesting because today that book has become almost, in many circles, not all, in many circles, the Sephardic Mishnah Beruah of sorts. It's a running commentary on the Shulchan Aruch that incorporates many uh, latter-day opinions. You know, I bought my set of Kav HaChaim. I was waiting for years to buy my own set of Kav HaChaim because the Kav HaChaim print is a miserable, miserable print. It's, it's terrible Rashi letters and missing words and, and the blotches on the page. And If you've ever seen one inside, it's, it's a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the original one. Because there were a lot of uh, arguments among the, I guess, the descendants of the Kavachim about printing rights and all of those things. And they, did, they would always, every few years, they would put out a new Kavachim. All that it meant was it got a new cover. But the inside was the same, the same terrible font and print and everything else. At a certain point, I'm a rabbi Nakila. I need, I'm in a city where nobody owns Kavachim. I need my own Kavachim. I ordered a Kavachim after waiting. That maybe one day, they keep telling me, one day someone's going to reprint the Kavachim. One day, I bought a set of Kavachim. So I remember I paid $180 plus maybe $40 shipping to bring it to San Diego. And literally the next week, they published a brand new laser print, newly typesetted, corrected edition of the Kav HaChaim, which I don't have. One day I'll, I'll uh, take the pain of buying another set of Kav HaChaim. But there's a, today a beautiful version of the Kav HaChaim. If you'd like to study from it, it's available in many, many the bookstores and, and Batei Knesset around the world. Shekadav, he writes... הנדרים שבתורה אשר הגנין למוחם בכל השנה בפעם אחת גרום פרשת ויחולו ויתנחה מלאך הגואל וכמה טובו He mentions the custom that they sell all these random pieces of the Torah that they sell throughout the year. There's all these special parashiyot that normally when the synagogue comes to them they auction off that aliyah and that's what they do on Simchat Ranai. ביד שם למגן אברהם, דוקות למגן אברהם רצה, ואין לחוכמת אדם שכתב שיש מקומות אין קוראים בלילה 
There are places where nobody reads the Torah at night. They just roll it to the right place for tomorrow's reading. And that is the custom in Prague. But in our countries, they read at night. All of this, you see that there's really no consensus, or there was no consensus among the Ashkenazim. If you read, and if you read, is it just reading? Is it reading with aliyot? Is it reading with brachot? Is it reading which part of the Torah you're reading? But there seems to be this custom of many different types of readings that happen in various Ashkenazi communities connected to the Seva Torah on the night of Simchat Torah. Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagim, Kol everything that I wrote, En HaSefaradim Yodim Min The Sephardim know nothing of this custom. And the truth is that I have never in my life heard of a Sephardic community in which they read the Torah at night ever. But especially on Simchat Torah, I never heard of such a thing. If anybody has heard of such a thing, I would love to be taught differently, but I don't think so. I did see a very interesting Tishuvah last night when I was researching this, Rabbi Yaakov Ariel, an Israeli rabbi, who was asked by a group of soldiers who knew that they had to be on a mission on Simchat Torah daytime. And they wanted to know if it was possible to rely on this Ashkenazi custom and to do the Torah reading of the day of Simchat Torah, meaning to finish the Torah, to start the Torah again, to give a Chatan Torah, Chatan Bereshit, all of those things, to do that on the nighttime of Simchat Torah, because they know that tomorrow they're going to be in a mission and they won't be able to read the Torah. And it was a, a fascinating Teshuvah. Ultimately, I don't think he told them they should do that. Uh, it made them feel good about protecting the land of Israel, and that that's their mitzvah, and let other people read the Torah. But it was a good question, meaning can you use this Ashkenazi custom as a precedent to reading Torah at night in general, and it doesn't seem the answer should be yes to that. Okay, the next one, Mem Dalit. Sefaradim, en nohagim likrot chelek ma'agada b'shabbat ha'gadol k'minhag ashkenaz. The Sefaradim don't read portions of the Haggadah on the Shabbat prior to Pesach uh, like the Ashkenazim do. Now, not all Ashkenazim do this, but many, many, many groups of Ashkenazim have a custom that on the Shabbat before Pesach, Shabbat HaGadol, they spend the bulk of Shabbat reading through the Haggadah of Pesach that you would normally read on the night of Pesach. And since Faradim don't have this custom, if you look at footnote 87, look in my book at Hashem Tov, in this volume, <coughs> in the customs of Pesach, what I wrote there, he said, but since I wrote that, I found a new idea about why Ashkenazim read the Haggadah of Pesach before Pesach starts. And he says, The Maharil is the one who quotes this custom. And he was one of the greatest codifiers of Ashkenazi customs. <coughs> and he said, Amar Mohari Segal, Mohari Siegel says, That you should review with the young students the Haggadah of Pesach and the Shabbat before Pesach. And my understanding is that this became a custom that the rabbis were supposed to teach the little kids how to read the Haggadah in preparation for Pesach. The adults thought there must be something special about reading the Haggadah, the Shabbat before Pesach. And this became a custom. And originally, this custom was not instituted. It was made for the children that they should read the Haggadah. It doesn't make much sense why the Shabbat before Pesach, you would read a whole Haggadah. For what purpose do you read the Haggadah now? You're going to read it in a few days from now. So, he says it must be that originally the custom in Ashkenaz was to teach the children, and that somehow became the custom that everybody started doing. By the way, 
people are going to be sitting around Shabbat afternoon speaking Lashon Hara or whatever else they're going to be doing. And they should read the Haggadah. They can also read the Machzor of Yom Kippur. They could do Mishle um, and Kohelet and however they want to read Megillat Estel. Whatever they want to do as long as they don't speak Lashon Hara about other people on Shabbat. It's very important. So on Shabbat Agadol especially, they can read whatever they want. But this custom is not found among the Sevaradim to read the Haggadah before Pesach. Memhe. This one is an interesting halakha that has practical ramifications for us in the regular day-to-day life. Sefaradim. Im katan If a young boy knows to whom we bless, mizamnim alav, we are able to include him as one of three or one of ten for a zimun. A zimun, not a minyan, a zimun. Meaning, if there's a young boy, what's young? Not two, not five, eight, nine, ten, eleven, this age range. It's not bar mitzvah yet. And you need for a zimun three men to say a zimun, or alternatively three women to say a zimun. If that's, those, those are both a zimun. In order to count someone as number three, we're able to ask a young boy, do you know who we're blessing to? Frank Fine. Do you know who Frank Dakalash Bachu? We'll count you as one of the three for a zimun. Ashkenazim, ad ben yud gimel echad, and Ashkenazim will not do such a thing until the boy is 13 years old in one day, meaning past the age of Bar Mitzvah. They will not count him for a zimun. He writes at the bottom on 88. We've mentioned earlier that the Sevardim, the young men also wear tefillin before Bar Mitzvah. There are a lot of things that happen before Bar Mitzvah. For whatever reason, Ashkenazim are constantly waiting until the Bar Mitzvah in order to allow young people to do all kinds of things. It's very interesting to me that our Chachamim instituted, if you look in Masechet, I want to tell you to Masechet Sukkah. There's a, the rabbis tell us there, that when a young child is able to speak, we have to teach him how to speak Hebrew, how to read Hebrew. When a child is able to wear clothing, we give him a talit. When a child is able to take care of his tefillin, we give him a tefillin. When he knows how to wave a lavanatol, we give him a lavanatol, and so on and so forth. And that's what we do. And that's the halakha. The law is that we must educate our children before they're obligated to do mitzvot. In a Yemenite community, for example, or an old-school Sephardic community, uh, in Yemen, this is still the practice, in Yemenite synagogues, my Sephardim, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. I did see an article, I didn't get to finish, in Hebrew, from Chacham Faur, in which he promoted this idea of young men being pushed to read from the Torah, even before their Bar Mitzvah. Uh, Rabbi David Shalush, who was the chief rabbi of Netanya, was adamant that in his Batei Knesset, nobody over the age of 17 or 18 should lead the Tefillah. Always the young people should lead the Tefillah, because who's, we already come to the Beit Knesset. We already know how to pray. It's not, it's not about us. We have to make sure that the young people are also coming to the Beit Knesset. In my home, I buy Lulav and Etog for my son Elchanan and for my son Avinam. When my daughters will get old enough and they want Lulav and Etog, I'll buy them Lulav and Etog too. To do mitzvot. To teach your kids to do mitzvot. You can't wait until it's too late in order for them to do mitzvot. You have to make sure that they do mitzvot already now. The next one, Memvav. This may be a surprise to you. And it really segues into the next section of Rishem Tov Gagin that God willing will do after the holidays. There's this illusion 
Maybe that's not the right word. It's, a, it's a, some kind of preconceived understanding of the Jewish community that Sephardim are extremely lenient in Jewish practice and Ashkenazim are super Jews. This is, they do everything super, super strict, super kosher, super Shabbat, so everything is super. Rabbi Dov Gagin is going to spend the bulk of our winter together, Bezalat Hashem, tackling that misconception by the horns. And he's going to show you dozens and dozens and dozens of places where the Mishnah, the Talmud, they rule one way, the Sephardim act that way, and Ashkenazim don't, yet somehow still have this understanding that they're more religious than the Jews who follow the Talmud. And he's going to, it's part of his pitch on how to unite the Jewish people by first pointing many things out that are not so unifying. It's, it's a style that Rishem Tovkagin is going to lead us through. It's not the same. We'll get there when we get there. This may not be what we think, but let's read. Sephardim mechassim rosham afilu babayit. Sephardim cover their hair even at home. Who are we talking about? Men or women? So you think, right? But here he's talking about men. He's talking about kipot. Chisur Rosh is talking about a kippah. Sephardim wear kipot even at home. Ashkenazim, Barishona, Hayum Mutpalim, Begilu Rosh. Originally, the Ashkenazim used to pray without any head covering at all. That was the original custom of Ashkenaz. Let's look at footnote 89. Katav HaManhig, the Manhig writes, The custom has become not to pray with an uncovered head. Like the custom of all the Jews of Spain. And strengthen their ways that the Sephardim cover their head when they pray. The Ramah writes in the Dachim Moshe, B'Shem Ha'ur Zahua, that in France, they used to read the Torah with no head covering at all. The man would read bareheaded. Says Rabbi Shendov Gagin, there are some apologetics who wish to say, that what does it mean an uncovered head? Not God forbid they weren't wearing a kippah, but they weren't wearing a double covering of a talit on top of their kippah. When he says that the man in France used to read the Torah bareheaded, it doesn't really mean bareheaded. It means they were covered, but they weren't covered with a talit. That's very, very difficult for us to accept. That that's what bareheaded means. Ayen Rambam, Uva More, look in the Mishnah Torah, in the laws of Deot, chapter 5, 6, and in the laws of the Moren Vuchim, the third chapter, chapter 52. That even at home you're forbidden to go with the outer head covering. He said, and now, all of us cover our head, specifically that those who are Torah scholars and those who are considered God-fearing Jews. And lately there has been a book printed by Professor Shmuel Kreuz on this topic. Shmuel Kreuz was a rabbi, I don't know his affiliation, he jumped around between a number of rabbinic seminaries. I can't tell you much more than Rabbi Shandov Gagin considers him worthy of quoting. He was born in 1866 in Hungary, and he died in Cambridge in 1948 at the age of 82. He uh, wrote a book on this topic about Kisirosh. The first halachic essay I ever wrote in my life, I'm embarrassed of it today because it was many, many years ago. Uh, I was 17 years old. I wrote it, I published it in a journal in the Yeshiva. It was about the halacha of covering one's head with a kippah. Is it an obligation? Is it not? 
I believe that today I would write drastically different things than I wrote then, but there definitely is much conversation in the halakha whether covering one's head applies to all Jews. Does it apply only to men and not to women? Who said that women are allowed to pray with their head uncovered? It seems very obvious from the sources of halakha that require a head covering for men that women are also required to cover their head when they pray. I'm not single, married, I don't know. You remember, maybe you don't see, but when I was growing up, I remember the old Ashkenazi ladies would come to the synagogue with these uh, doilies on their head. They're like, um, they put them on the cake platters when they serve the cookies and kiddush, and they would come, I don't know why that of all the things that people wore, but they were clearly following an older tradition that said that women must cover their hair for tefillah. Chacham of Yosef was adamant that single girls in his schools will, will cover their hair when they pray. It's not a reform thing for women to wear a kippah, but I, this whole, it's a reform thing. I don't really care, reform, it's conservative. Or, halakha, halakha is what matters. In halakha, there seems to be, if you believe that people have to cover their hair when they pray, then everyone has to cover their hair when they pray. And if you don't believe that women have to cover their hair when they pray, most likely men don't have to cover their hair when they pray either. And if you look at the placement of the Rambam's law of wearing a kippah, you find it in a very unusual place. He puts it in the laws of De'ot. Smack in the middle. Anybody know what that chapter is talking about? The fifth chapter of the laws of De'ot. I want to pull it up for a second. The fifth chapter of the laws of De'ot is all addressed to Torah scholars. The Rambam has no mention of head covering for lay people that are not Torah scholars in any place in his Mishneh Torah. It's from here that many, many, many people consider the halakha that only Torah scholars have to cover their hair. But regular people don't have to. Maybe when they pray or the brachot, possibly. But that's really who women would rely on if they're not covering their hair when they pray. Is because men also don't have to cover according to the Rambam, only a Torah scholar. What about a woman who's a Tamilak Chama? Well, then in that case, you probably have to cover your hair too. This is um, an interesting conversation that I'm not going to have all of it now. I remember there was a situation, one of our Shiviti students around the world, that they made a Sidur party of sorts for these first grade kids who were giving out the Sidurim. And one of the girls wanted to dress like her mother, her mother who's a member of Shiviti. And she dressed up like her mother, and she put a mitpachat on, she put on a scarf. And she came to her sitter party at the day school, wherever she lives, and the teacher took off her head covering. She said, you're not allowed to wear that. That's not something you can wear in our school. And the girl was so hurt. She didn't want to come to her sitter party. She didn't want to, but I forget how that. Like an education level, the kid wants to wear a, a Pokemon hat on their head. Who cares? What do you care? Let them do whatever they want to do there. School, get in their sidu, leave them alone. <coughs> And then what ended up happening was that they reached out to me if I would allow a girl like that to wear a head covering in school. I'm the family's rabbi. I said, of course, well, I don't understand. If, like I told you, if she wanted to wear uh, purple bows in her hair, you're going to stop her? Who cares? She wants to get a sidu. Leave her alone. Before I could even count to ten, there were messages coming into my phone, to my wife's phone, that they heard that as much as we pride ourselves on being and uh, open-minded Jewish people that we force even little girls in our synagogue to cover their hair and cover their faces and cover their... I'm thinking to myself, how did you get from here to... All I said was, 
don't bother the little girl at his Sidur party. All she wants is to get a Sidur with her mother. That fits, by the way, a thousand percent into the philosophy of my wife and I. Leave people alone. Just leave the children alone. But somehow that was turned into, I don't know, some kind of an advocation for, uh, for forced head covering. For, we don't even, we, I don't, if a man would come to my bed at Knesset without a kippah, I wouldn't even hand him a kippah. Let him pray what he wants to pray, how he wants to pray. I'm not here to push anything on him. And when, when ladies show up here in Yom Kippur with a rainbow talit and a kippah, I don't say anything either. A person wants to pray, what, I'm going to tell him not to pray here? How do I tell a person, no, you're not allowed to pray with us because you, it doesn't even match our world at all. So, we reached one of our first topics. You know, I'm looking at the book. I'm looking at the time. And I'm telling myself, if you would allow me one last sheet word before Yom Kippur, we have a Tuesday before Yom Kippur. And anyways, everybody does Kapalot the next morning. If I could leave with the topic of Kapalot for that Tuesday, anyone able to be here the Tuesday before Yom Kippur? Possibly? Yeah? I want to do everything else. I want to finish the chapter. And then if HaKadosh Baruch Hu will allow us to meet again before Yom Kippur, then let's do Kapalot then so I don't have to cut the short when it's, it's worth it's worth a conversation of its own on the evolution of the custom of Kapalot that exists in the Jewish community today. But I'll read it to you now, just so we, we don't leave it incomplete. Sefaradim, lo nahagu milfani kapalot. Originally, the Sefaradim never did kapalot. What do we mean when we say kapalot? <coughs> Which customer are we referring to? The chickens throwing <coughs> Waving the chickens over our heads. And then he says, But today, the Sephardim, they all follow the Ashkenazi custom of doing kapalot. Now, this is not as black and white as Rabbi Shem Dovgagin would like to make it seem to us. But let suffice it to say that in the Shulchan Aruch, Maran forbids us from doing kapalot. He claims it's an idolatrous practice that we are not allowed to do. How did the Sephardim end up like the Ashkenazim? God willing, in next week's shiul, I will take care of, uh, not next week, the following week, I will show you exactly the evolution of kapalot. And aside from the original concerns about kapalot, it could be there are new kap- concerns of kapalot. There are, if you ever see the videos that come out of New York or major Jewish communities, animal rights groups that show up, and all kinds of things that Amisal has to reconsider its stances on certain things every once in a while. I'm not telling you you must or you must not, but let's take time in two weeks to go through the minhag of kapalot. If you go with me to the top of the next page, so it should be 25 in the Roman numerals, but 23 in your PDF. Sefaradim v'ashkenazim enam nishtavim yachad be'ezhaftarot ha'shana. The Sefaradim and Ashkenazim, their haftarot don't match up always throughout the year. In footnote 91, He said any chumash that you look at, <coughs> we'll have some differences between Sephardim read until here, Ashkenazim read until there, Chabad Chassidim read until here. Oh, okay, that's what you find in many of the Chumashim. I don't find any need to detail those. You just can go to your Chumash and consult with it and see which ones we don't read the same. Memtet. Sephardim machmirim lahamtin sheshaot. Afidu achar achilat basar of. Kedeh lechol givinah. Sephardim are strict. They wait six hours even after eating chicken before they consume dairy. They're lenient that you can eat dairy right after eating meat 
אם ברך ברכת המזון, if you say ברכת המזון between eating meat and eating the milk, או על ידי קינוח והדחה, or by cleaning out your mouth and hands. ומנהגם הפשוט, but the common custom among the Ashkenazim, להמתין אחר אכילת בשר שעה אחת to wait one hour after eating meat until they eat dairy. So we read this, essentially what Rishav Dovgin is telling us, the Varadim wait six hours even after chicken before consuming dairy. Ashkenazim don't have to wait at all. They just recite Brakat Amazon or wash out their mouth and wash their hands and then they can have dairy. But the custom among the Ashkenazim, the prevalent custom, is to wait one hour. Let's take this one step at a time. Are you familiar that Zavaradim waits six hours after eating meat? Before they consume dairy? Yes, good. Do you know that Ashkenazim just say Brakat Amazon after eating meat and then right away have dairy? Do you know Ashkenazim who do that? No, I don't think so. Uh, what about Ashkenazim? Okay, they don't just say Brakat Amazon, they also go wash out their mouth and wash their hands and now they can have dairy? Also, probably you haven't seen that. What about waiting one hour? Is that an Ashkenazi custom to wait one hour? Someone help me out, but I can't hear you. Someone help me out. Ima, are you talking? Because I can't hear you. Can someone else talk? Is my microphone not working right now? Give me one second. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? How about now? Yes, I don't know what happened with my microphone. Tell me. Can... In Holland, they wait, they say that it's a Dutch custom to wait only one hour. Have you heard that before? Yes. Yes. Wait one hour. So that's an interesting thing because if we look together in the Shulchan Aruch, we'll find it has nothing to do with Dutch people. I don't know why the Dutch got blamed for keeping one hour. Uh, let's let's look at the Shulchan Aruch together. Why not? I sent a link out to the Shulchan Aruch. It's a Shulchan Aruch Yoredea 89. Do you see that? It's the bottom link in your group. Let's look what Maran writes in the Shulchan Aruch. Can you still hear me well? Yeah, okay. Shelo lechol givina achar basar. Says Maran, you should not eat cheese, dairy after meat. And he writes the following in the first halakha. Achal basar. I'm reading to you this seif in Shulchan Aruch the way I was taught by Mori HaRav Yaakov Peres. I'm aware that there are some other Sephardic voices out there that don't 
agree with what the way I will explain this halakha. This is the way that I learned the halakha from Hara Peretz. This is the way that I believe it to be true. Uh, everyone else is welcome to read it however they wish. Achal basar, if you eat meat. Afilushan chayav even fowl, chicken meat. Lo yochal givina chalav, you should not eat dairy afterwards. Ad shishesheshaot, until you wait six hours. Vafiluim shahakeshiur, and even if you wait the amount of time of six hours. Im yesh basar benashinaim, if you still have meat stuck between your teeth. You have to remove that meat between your teeth. And even someone who doesn't swallow the meat, but they chew the food for a baby. So sometimes people chew the, the food for their baby and they put it, I don't know, I wish I was never a baby that someone did that for. And they spit out the food and they feed it to their baby. That is something that even if you would do that for your baby, you would have to wait six hours. Now really what Maran is telling you, there seem to be two understandings of the Talmud that are represented in the writings of Rashi and the writings of the Rambam. One who says the reason why we wait between the consumption of meat and milk is because of the meat that is stuck between our teeth. According to that opinion, if you floss your teeth and clean your teeth, or you wait a number of hours until the meat in your teeth loses flavor, which seems to be six hours, you shouldn't have to remove the meat from your teeth, or if you remove the meat from your teeth, you should be able to right away consume dairy. The other opinion says, no, it's not about the meat in between your teeth we're concerned about. It's about, forgive me for the, what the Chachamim say, that you swallow the meat and there's flavor that keeps being burped up from that meat. And that flavor is something that we're concerning ourselves with. And Maran seems to be ruling stringently according to both opinions. So you can't be lenient like either one of those, but we're stringent according to both of those. Meaning even if you don't swallow, you still have to floss your teeth. And even if you wait six hours, uh, sorry, even if you don't swallow, you still have to wait six hours. And even if you have meat stuck between your teeth after six hours and it doesn't count as meat anymore, you still have to clean your teeth before you have dairy. Now, let me back up for just a moment. And that is, the Torah tells us, do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. The Torah tells us that how many times? Three times. One, to teach us a prohibition of cooking meat and milk. One teaches us a prohibition of eating meat and milk that were cooked together. And the third time teaches us the prohibition of getting any benefit from meat and milk mixtures that were cooked together. Yes, that's why it says three times. According to the Torah, if you were to take a slice of salami and a slice of mozzarella cheese and put them in a sandwich, would you be allowed to eat the sandwich according to the Torah? Very good, absolutely, Betsy's right. Absolutely, you can eat that sandwich. Nobody should walk away from this class saying, look, Yonatan Halevi lost his mind, now we're having cheeseburgers and shiviti. No, this is not what's happening right now. The Torah only prohibits meat and milk mixtures that are cooked together. So if you were to grill the cheese on top of the burger, that would be a meat and milk mixture that is forbidden. But just placing cheese on top of a cold piece of meat wouldn't violate a biblical prohibition at all. Our Chachamim added a rabbinic prohibition that even meat and milk that are not cooked together are not allowed to be consumed together. So that is already a rabbinic fence on a biblical commandment. When our Chachamim suggests waiting between the consumption of meat and milk, is that an extension of a biblical law? Or is that an extension of a rabbinic law? What are they concerned about? You can't have meat, a dairy, right after you eat milk because, because what? What's their logic? 
you're going to be consuming it together. Is that a rabbinic prohibition of consuming it together or a biblical prohibition? It's a rabbinic prohibition, meaning our rabbis are essentially adding a rabbinic prohibition on top of a rabbinic prohibition. Correct? Harav Peretz always told me that if he was there in the time of the Talmud, he would tell them they're not allowed to do such a thing. And Gozlim Gezerah al Gezerah. You're not allowed to add one decree on top of another decree. You decided also to not eat them together, fine, but now there's a limit to how far you, you can stretch laws. <coughs> I'm, I'm already, that's a fantastic question. I'm already not a, I would, I would like to say that for them, this is just a natural continuation of theirs. They didn't add a gazera. This is just simply part of not eating meat and milk together because you'll, you still have residue in your mouth or in your throat or whatever it is, and you are mixing meat and milk, which is a violation of their original prohibition. Let's say that's what, that's what I would like to answer for them. Now the Ramah comes along, and the Ramah says the following. And if you find meat in between your teeth, and now you take it out, you have to wash out your mouth again so there's no new residue from that meat. But I forgot something. In the Gemara, we already talk about how long a person has to wait between meat and milk. One of the rabbis says, I am vinegar, the son of wine. What's the relationship between vinegar and wine? Vinegar is a soured wine. Yes, it's it's a it's an inferior product to the wine itself. He's saying I'm I'm inferior to my father. My father used to wait 24 hours between eating meat and having milk, and I wash my mouth out between eating meat and having milk. So in the Talmud already, <coughs> you find two extreme positions: one that says wait 24 hours between meat and milk, and one that says wash your mouth out between meat and milk. And both are in the same family. The Arizal, by the way, was careful not to eat meat in the same, milk in the same day he ate meat. So not 24 hours, so he would eat it today. Until tomorrow morning when he woke up, he wouldn't have milk. I once saw a letter from the Benish Chai. The Benish Chai heard of somebody who was waiting 24 hours between meat and milk, and he said, if you come to me, I will excommunicate you from the Jewish community for trying to be more religious than the Benish Chai. That was his answer to him. Okay, I just thought it was a tidbit of information I, I could add here. The Ramah says, Some say, You don't have to wait six hours. That immediately you just wash your hands uh, and, and your mouth and you say, You get rid of all the meat. You say, You wash your hands and your mouth and right away you're going to have dairy. <coughs> Who says this? Tosafot. Mordechai, Hagot Ashley, Hagot Maimonim, the These are all of the giants of Ashkenaz. Their opinion is that right after you have meat, immediately you wash your mouth, you move the meat off the table, you say Berkan Mazon, and right after your meat meal, you are allowed to consume dairy. Who needs parav ice cream? You just clear the table, say Berkan Mazon, send everyone to the sink, and come back for your favorite, I don't know what you have, Hagendaz, the cream, ice cream, whatever it is you want to have at your Shabbat table. I mean, that was the custom of Chachmei Ashkenaz. The sages of Ashkenaz disagreed with the Rambam entirely, and this is not unusual if you are familiar with the methodology of the French-German rabbis and in general their feelings towards Talmudic law. 
They claim that this is not their opinion. Their opinion is right away you can have dairy after meat. These are not lay Ashkenazi people. These are the giants of the Ashkenazi community. If you would go to the home of Tosafot, he would serve you a coffee with milk right after you had a ribeye steak in his home. And he was the chacham of his people. But the prevalent custom in our communities, to wait one hour after eating meat, and right away they eat cheese. But you do have to say after you finish. I mean, you do have to make an interruption between the meat meal and the dairy meal. But the custom, the prevalent custom in Ashkenaz is to only wait one hour. Let's go down to the end. The Sefer Aruch says you don't even have to say Berkat Amazon to eat cheese. You can have it in the same meal. You just wait an hour. We're not so careful. There are some who are very particular. To wait six hours like the Shulchan Aruch between meat and milk. And that is the right thing to do, says the Ramah. If you click on this piece, and you click on commentary, and you look for... You look for... The Sifte Kohen. So click commentary, click Sifte Kohen, that's the Shach. And scroll all the way down to the last of his eight commentaries. V'chen nechol la'asot. V'kach katab maharshal. And that's what the maharshal wrote. V'chen rawi la'asot. That this is what a person should do. L'chol mi sheyesh boreach Torah. Anybody who even smells like the Torah, they should wait six hours between meat and milk. So you find that Ashkenazi rabbis very early on are already upset that Ashkenazi Jews are not following the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. And they're pushing them in the direction of waiting six hours. And I think that's why earlier when I asked you, do you know Ashkenazim who wait an hour? Do you know Ashkenazim who watch Ramadan? No, I really think that Ashkenazim in today's world wait six hours between meat and milk like the Sephardim do. I'm not here to talk about three hours and five and a half hours and all the other minhagim that exist. But I can tell you that there has been a shift at least from what I have seen in the Ashkenazi community, to wait six hours like the Sevaradim do. I don't know any more of Ashkenazim who only wait one hour, and maybe the reason why the Dutch are blamed for this minhag, it could be that they're the last of the Ashkenazi Jews who are still waiting only one hour between min, and that's how somehow it became a Dutch minhag. It's not a Dutch minhag. All of the Chachamim of Ashkenaz waited only one hour. And from here I have to tell you that there are reasons in which you can advise a person, according to halakha, that they don't have to wait six hours. Like I told you, I know, I know. I know that I'm a Sephardis, everyone's supposed to be like Maran, the Rambam, and, and there's only one way to read the Talmud. I understand. I'm, I'm put, put it aside. Leave the propaganda for somebody else. In our opinion, the way Halakha has always taught us, Kafachayim also read, Kafachayim writes here, that if a pregnant woman is craving food, or a sick person needs right away to have dairy, then you wait an hour and they're good to go. There's already, there's already what to rely on just by waiting a little bit. Remember, we're talking about a gezerah, on a gezerah of a biblical law. This is far removed from the original prohibition. Let's say you have a person who is 
for whatever reason, struggling with waiting between meat and milk. There are many Jews in the world who keep kosher. I remember going to Israel, even to some of my family, and they keep kosher, but right away after the meal, they want to have coffee with milk, and then they feel so guilty, they might as well not keep kosher. Imagine you tell a person, listen, you're not following the Shulchan let's be honest, you're not following the Rambam either. But there is an opinion out there in the Jewish world that you are following, and many, many of Chachamei Ashkenaz were of this persuasion. You keep kosher. You even keep a thousand percent kosher according to the Tosafot, according to the Mordechai. You have a person who is newly observant, and for them the idea of waiting six hours between meat and milk is, is it's too much for their life to handle right now. So why make that the biggest obstacle they have to overcome? Leave them alone. Even if they were to wash their mouth out after they said, according to all of the Chachamim of Ashkenaz, they would be completely okay. I'm asking you this question. If you were to eat, you finish eating your meat meal, your mouth is clean, and right away you eat dairy, which halakha did you violate? Not a biblical law. Not even a rabbinic law. You're violating what is recorded as the practice that we do in order to preserve the halakhot of Chachamim. I'll give you an example. Let's say you went for you went with your spouse and your partner to a dinner somewhere, and you're walking around the streets. It was a night out, and you're walking for two hours. Who knows, all of a sudden you stumble across an ice cream cart, and they're selling ice cream, and you buy ice cream. You forgot that it hasn't been enough time since you, bought, since you ate your meat. And you take the ice cream, you're holding the ice cream cone, you say, now what do you do? You eat it. Why do you eat it, Betsy? But you're you're allowed to violate a law, a halakha, because of for another one. How do you how do you get away with eating meat and milk? It's also a biblical prohibition. What's the answer? Tell me the answer. I mean, on one hand, they're going to violate the biblical law of saying Hashem's name in vain. On the other hand, I'm going to be eating meat and milk together. What do I do? The only answer is, it's not a violation of eating meat and milk together to eat that ice cream. Yes, we have a minhag not to eat that ice cream. It's recorded in the Shulchan Aruch. It's clearly a very strong practice. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm debating between a biblical prohibition and a rabbinic prohibition, if at all. Of course I'm going to violate a rabbinic prohibition. I'm going to eat that ice cream. You don't have to finish the whole cone, okay? But you have to eat something, so your blessing that was biblical, saying Hashem's name in vain, is not violated. But a person who is just an observant Jew, what do they call themselves? Orthodox. An Orthodox Jew doesn't know halakha well. So what does he do? Right away, he goes, oh, I can't eat it, and it throws in the trash. But what happened? You just broke one of the Ten Commandments. For what? Not for a biblical, not even for a rabbinic prohibition. For, for what? A person needs to know halakha well. And I think that as much as I'm happy to see that Ashkenazim are jumping on board to the Shulchan Aruch, of all the places where I wish people would jump on board to the Shulchan Aruch, I don't think this is the one that really is going to make or break Jewish observance into the future. Give me two more minutes and I'm done this chapter with you. So we're just on, on uh, page 25. And he writes in Nun, difference number 50 out of 51. <laughs> Sefaradim at the end of the Haftarah of Shabbat Shuvah, they add three verses from the end of Micha. But Ashkenazim, they read from the book of Yoel other things. Now, the reason why this is a problem is there is a problem on reading certain prophets in orders, in different orders, and going backwards and going forwards. And Ashkenazim are in violation of that custom not to 
that law not to read this haftarah in this order. 51, are not equal when it comes to the nosach, the version of the ketubah, and not in the, the text of the get at all. And all the other contracts that we have in the Betadin, the Savardim and Ashkenazim have very different, very texts. And he says at the bottom, says there, Bishop Dovgagin, I'm not going to write this down because I could write a whole other essay on the differences between Savardim and Ashkenazim when it comes to legal contracts. I will tell you, I, whenever I do a wedding, it doesn't make a difference for who. Savardim, Ashkenazim. There's one text of the Ketubah that I'll use. It's kosher for everybody, but it definitely is more biased in the Sephardic direction. The Ashkenazi Ketubah, if you've ever read it before, I just did a wedding where I ended up being the rabbi at the wedding, even though I wasn't intended to be the rabbi at the wedding. So I did the wedding exactly the way the other rabbi had set everything up. There was an Ashkenazi rabbi set up an Ashkenazi Ketubah, and you read the Ashkenazi Ketubah that is full of superfluous language all over and over and over, maybe five or six times, it mentions the name of the bride and the groom, as if you forgot who we're talking about from the beginning of the contract until the end of the contract, over and over and over again. And there were titles, all kinds of titles, the kala hamahulala, the wonderful kala, and the khatan, just, just tell me their name at the beginning, tell me their name at the end, the names of the khatan and the kala. All of a sudden you have somebody, his, his English name is Christopher Johnson, and they name him in the, in the ketubah, he's uh, Moshe Mendel bin Tzvizev, Halevi. And then you, you wonder, who is this uh, Moshe Zev ben Svi? Who is this guy? When I will bring this contract to Bet Adin, and I need to know who the two witnesses are. Who are the witnesses? His name is John uh, Cohen, and I don't know, uh, uh, David uh, Goldberg. Yeah, all of a sudden this one becomes uh, David Tuvia ben Shlomo Leib, and this one, and then you come to the Bet Adin, and nobody knows who these people are. There's no last names, there's no real names. If I'm going to write a ketubah for Mr. Christopher, I'm going to write uh, Moshe Yaakov, who is also called Christopher, and I'm going to write his last name in the ketubah, uh, to the Johnson family. You have to know who this person is. Next, the currency that's used in the ketubah. Sephardim, whatever country we live in, we use the currency of that country. If you're in the UK, you'll use pounds. If you're in America, you use dollars. If you're in Israel, you use shkalim, and so on and so forth. By the Ashkenazim, there's no modern currency that's used. They use a currency of skukim kesef, some kind of silver currency that nobody is in agreement about what the silver currency is actually worth. If you would need to go to Bedin and deal with the silver currency, you're going to get to a complicated situation of over and over, they're adding this many, a hundred more silver coins on top of the original hundred silver coins. Why would you use a currency that nobody uses instead of using the currency of the place that we are in? But, again, I can't force people to do things the way we would do them. I can only say that this is one of those differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, the Nosach of the Kidubah, the Nosach of the Get, among other things, are completely different from each other. Yeah, with that, we're going to have one last class before Yom Kippurim, Bezal Hashem Yitzvah. It will be about Kaparot entirely, the custom of Kaparot. So it will be relevant even for those who have not always been with us throughout this Shio or not. In summarizing what we've done together with Bisham Tov Gagin until today in this section, and I know that I've been taking my time with getting through the writings of Bisham Tov Gagin. We started with many other rabbis and I've got stuck on Bisham Tov Gagin, not because I feel like being stuck, but I feel that the things that Bisham Tov Gagin is talking to us about in this introduction are foundational. These are things that need to be spoken about, and ultimately the solution that he will give us is what I believe to be the ultimate solution to Jewish unity. For right now, Bisham Tov Gagin is trying to show that the Jewish people are really one people. And for all the people out there who think 
We really are one people. We're all brothers. We're all sisters. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin has to burst your bubble. One of the first steps of the 12-step program, any type of 12-step program, is to admit that there's a problem. If you don't admit that there's a problem, you'll never be able to fix your problem. My wife is on the call. I'm sure she can more eloquently explain the 12 steps than I just did. But one of them, and you know, there's much controversy in general about the 12 steps. I'm not an advocate in either direction. A person has to know that there is much disunity between Savaladim and Ashkenazi. It's not necessarily bad, but it exists. And if we are in denial as to the extent to which it exists, then we are never going to be able to bridge the gaps between us. And before we can ever attempt to bring unity, we have to understand where each other stands on everything. There are two people who want to bring peace. You want everyone to get along with each other. I was listening yesterday to Shiur from Chacham Yosef. He said, there are certain styles of... We always have, we'll give in. We'll give in for peace. We'll give in for peace. When is the other side ever going to give in? Why only one side always gives in? That's an abusive relationship, not a healthy relationship. But here, you have something else. And that is that if we don't truly understand who the other side is, what they believe, what is valuable to them, then how will we ever expect to be able to get along with each other? We live in this dream that we're all the same except for a few things. I've given you a partial list of 51 things from the way that we're married to the way that we're buried to the way that we pray to the way that we sing to the way that we eat to the way we all of these things are different and nobody's saying right or wrong but we are saying they're different and in order to bring unity you have to admit that there is a difference when I first came to San Diego I grew up in San Diego and I grew up as a Sephardic kid in a very Ashkenormative world uh, even though I could tell you that many of the people around me were Savaladim. It didn't make a difference if you're sitting in a class where 20 of the 25 kids are Savaladim, the class is still going to be a very Ashkenazi Jewish experience. By the way, I'm grateful to have been taught many Ashkenazi things. I'm grateful to have spent time in other communities, to know Hasidic communities and Chabad communities and so on and so forth. But one thing that I never got was to sit in a classroom, to sit in a bit of Knesset and to hear the rabbi or the teacher acknowledge that there is a whole nother Judaism that doesn't do things this way. And when I first came back to San Diego, I promised myself that every time I would teach, just like Mori Harav Yaakov Peretz, every time I would teach, I'm going to tell you halakha, I will tell you Sephardim do this, Ashkenazim do this, Yemenites do this, not because I believe in dividing people, it became the rumor, oh, look how divisive he is. He can't even teach you the laws of Shabbat without making a difference between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. But this is in my bones. How dare I teach a class on the laws of Shabbat and write off the Ashkenazim as if they don't exist? Of course they exist. And the opinions of Chachamei Ashkenaz deserve to be studied. They deserve to be acknowledged and to be reckoned with. And it could be that ultimately I have a bias and I will rule like the Shulchan Aruch as I always do. But so what? Until then, I want every person who's sitting in a shiu of mine to know this rabbi knows what Sephardim do. This rabbi knows what Ashkenazim do. My opinions and my family's heritage and culture are represented fairly inside of this Vermidash. And I'm grateful to all of you who've been with me from the beginning of this journey for being big enough to understand that whenever we discuss Sephardim and Ashkenazim and the customs that come about, that never is there ever a side of denigration or putting down or, or comparing to understand, contrasting to understand, to give room, recognition, acknowledgement, validation that there are different flavors in Am Yisrael. And the only way that we can bring about peace for ourselves and for our children is to acknowledge the other and to say, you exist, I know you exist, I want you to exist. I want to be able also to engage with ideas that you and I agree about and even the things that we differ on. And I want to wish you all a Shana Tova As uh, Rav Paitan says in the first night of Rosh Hashanah, 
we sing Achot Ketana, and whichever tune you sing Achot Ketana, we end off with the words, Tichle Shana Vekiloteha, let this year and all of her curses end. Tachel Shana Uvirchoteha, and let this year and all of her blessings begin. Whatever was in the past is past. This last year and a half has been a crazy year and a half for the whole world, all over the world. And I bless us all together as a Benamidash that we should go forward as friends, as colleagues in the future, as an Amisrael for the whole world. Only goodness, only blessings, the curses should end and the blessings should all begin. Shana Tova Thank you so much for learning with me today and always.